What's up, everybody? Chad Dundas here. We're kicking off Pledge Drive Month during the month of September for the Co-Main Event Podcast, so we wanted to bless your timelines with this free episode of the CME Patreon Power Hour. This baby comes out every Friday to get you primed for the weekend's action in mixed martial arts. If you like what you hear from this free episode, please consider heading on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up for the Patreon page. We have three handy tiers of patronage that you guys could join at. We'd love to have you over there. It's a great community. The people have fun. And I hope for right now you enjoy this free episode of the CME Patreon Power Hour. What is up, patrons? Ben and Chad here once again as the CME's Patreon Power Hour rolls on for September the 2nd, 2022. Well, Ben, as we've been talking about all week, the UFC finally matriculates over to Paris, France this weekend. The heavyweight main event, Cyril gone against Ty the Prophecy to Ivasa. Headline in what seems to be, on the surface, kind of a low-profile fight night. Obviously, you got Bobby Knuckles on here. You got uh, Nasrat Hawkparast and John McDessie on here. You got guys like Joaquin Buckley on here. But you just, you run down the card, and it doesn't necessarily look like a big event. And yet, the UFC's arrival in Paris might be sort of the final frontier in terms of breaking into new geography, getting into places that previously hadn't been particularly hospitable to mixed martial arts. Obviously, the UFC, not the first to get there. We had some relatively high-profile MMA events in France earlier in the year, but this is the flagship, man. This is the, uh, the big deal in the industry, landing on the shores and claiming this land for Dana White. This weekend, we're got, we're, we might find something close to a number one heavyweight championship contender, although everything is up in the air, up there at 265 pounds right now. I guess let's just open it up, starting with this. Uh, does this feel like a big deal to you to have the UFC get to France? And in fact, does it seem like a big deal for the UFC to debut in any new territory these days? I guess it seems less and less like a big deal just because most of the big deals in that regard have happened already. And yet, if you were to take a big picture step back and you were looking at the UFC and you were trying to assess what are the good things the UFC has done for the sport of MMA and combat sports in general and what are the bad things. And there's entries on both sides of the fucking ledger, as Trixie from Deadwood would say. But... One of the big things that I have to think you would give them credit for on the good side of the ledger is the way they have pursued opening up new markets that if it were left to other promoters who are just trying to keep their heads above water in their own markets, they probably would not have pursued as aggressively. And that has benefited everybody in this sport because we've seen several times Paris is kind of another example, or France in general is another example of the UFC really pursuing a new market and jumping through the hoops 
doing the stuff that you got to do, the boring regulatory stuff that you got to do to get it legalized and regulated somewhere so that you can hold events there going forward. And then some other promoter goes, thank you, yoink, and just jumps right in there and holds their own show. Happened in New York when the UFC, after years and years of expensive uh, lobbying that looked, you know, as lobbying in the American politics often does from a distance, like bribing, <laughs> but worked, especially in the, what was at the time, a pretty uh, wantonly corrupt New York State legislature. And they got it, they, they got what they wanted in the end. And that's why other promoters like the PFL or Bellator or whoever else can go in there or Madison Square Garden or Barclay Center and, and, and have big events in New York City and make good money doing it. It's because the UFC had that on the, the bulletin board there for a long time and doggedly pursued it. And I guess it's a testament to how successful the UFC was at doing that, that it feels like less of a big deal now to be showing up in Paris and shooting our promos in front of the goddamn Eiffel Tower. Just because we're used to, you can take this thing anything anywhere in the world now. and Because the UFC has, has sort of created that world for itself. Let me take you back, Chad Dundas, to the spring of 2012, April 2012. You know where I was? Spring of 2012. Don't know. I was in Stockholm, Sweden, where the UFC was traveling over there. Just to give you a little blast from the past, this was a UFC on Fuel TV event going down at the Ericsson Globe in Stockholm. And I remember working on a story for Sports Illustrated at the time where the UFC was very happy to be in Sweden. And they went, and look, it's all thanks to the Swedish MMA uh, Federation. Uh, and you know, they, they put this guy, they had this guy, Swedish guy, really nice, uh, dapper businessman type, uh, who I, I remember interviewing me. His name was August Wallen. Uh, and he mentioned being named after, uh, the playwright, um, August Strindberg, not the one. I think so. And I think I said something like, oh, because he said I was the name after the, the playwright. And I said, August Strindberg or whatever. And he was like very, and sort of a, a dour tone. Um, oh, an educated man. Uh, <laughs> let me know he was not actually that impressed. And uh, But we were talking about it, and I realized as we were talking about it, wait a minute. So this wasn't your idea to create this Swedish MMA federation. The UFC kind of came to you and was like, hey, we know you guys, especially Swedes, but a lot of European nations love themselves a federation to govern their sports and that the key to getting it regulated and legalized so you can hold your events and make your money over there is to have a federation. So how about uh, we'll support you in getting that federation up off the ground, up and running. And the UFC did that kind of thing to ver with varying degrees of thumb on the scale in a lot of places. For instance, the Brazilian commission, which we recognize some problems with the Brazilian commission right off the bat when we were like, wait a minute. So like, how is this doctor who you guys have worked with and who is Vitor's doctor, the doctor for the Brazilian commission? But it was all of a piece of the UFC going around the world and being like, okay, how do you, we don't want to go there and be the, the regulator because then that puts a whole lot of shit on us. And then if something goes wrong, it's on us. We need someone to get it, be able to get up there and complain about if shit goes wrong. It can't, we're not going to complain about ourselves. And we needed to have this veneer of like, hey, the government's in charge. We're not just traveling around having uh, goddamn 
human cockfighting in cages. Uh, the government is regulating it. And they took this other approach to be, instead of just trying to show up with a cage, let us try to create these commissions. And it's honestly worked out pretty well for the UFC because now, and we're getting back to it, you go all over the world, hold these events, and move around enough so that when you show up in Paris for the UFC in Paris event, it doesn't even matter who you have on the card, man. You can have outrageous ticket prices and the shit gonna sell out because they're happy to see you. Yeah. Uh, you know how you don't make someone sound like they're on the level? Refer to him as Vitor's doctor. <laughs> All I hear is the phrase Vitor's doctor and I have questions. Mm -hmm. I have questions about the, your propriety, about your moral fiber. I would like to ask you some questions, Vitor's doctor. First of all, uh, let me see the diploma. I mean, Where is it from? Or I was thinking my first question for Vitor's doctor is going to be, what do you bench? <laughs> well, I'd have to see the guy first. Then I would know what kind of question that was. Uh, you know what is fascinating to me that I actually wanted to do a story about for The Athletic, but two things happened to prevent it. First of all, the pandemic. And second, haha, we all got fired. Uh, so I couldn't pick it up after that and, and do the story. But there is, I feel like there's this whole world that exists, this entire infrastructure at the UFC behind the scenes that must exist to take the UFC on the road every week. There must be like a sprawling infrastructure that is basically like the UFC roadshow. And if when you go to cover events in person, you like see little glimmers of it, right? Like one time I remember, I think I was in, I think I was in Vegas actually, but I could have been somewhere else. And I was like eating at a restaurant and a couple of guys who clearly worked for the UFC were eating at the next table. They had like UFC lanyards and UFC hats and UFC shirts and shit. When someone works for the UFC, you can tell. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, I wonder who these dudes are. And it became clear as I eavesdropped on their conversation uh, that they like were part of the cage crew, that these guys put the cage together and took it down at the end of the night, which doesn't sound like a very glamorous job. Uh, but like, think about that, man. Like during normal times, either pre or post pandemic, the UFC on the road, basically every weekend, they've got to have a cage crew. They've got to have, I would think like local scouts basically to like figure out where to do shit in whatever town that they're going to. They must have, uh, people at what would have been Zufa LLC, uh, arranging travel and logistics and where's, what's the fanciest suite in town. Cause that's what we got to get for Dana White. Cause he's going to, that's where he wants to stay. Like when we go to Milwaukee, what's the, what, where's Dana White going to stay if he's not going to jet out on his private plane after the thing's over. I always wanted to do a story on that, man, like the UFC roadshow, because it must just be one hell of an operation. And as we sit here today, I find myself wondering, okay, so you got to go to France, man. Like, uh, how, first of all, how many octagons do you got? How many octagons is the UFC in possession of? And does one of them just kind of live like in England over there in, in Europe. So when you got to go over there, oh, well, we already got the octagon there. We don't have to ship that there. Or do you just ship it back and forth every time? I have no idea. I would love to have these questions answered. But, uh, you know, didn't get didn't get the chance to do it because, A, the pandemic and B, ha we all got fired. Yeah. You know, I remember from working for the IFL what a big deal it was just to coordinate that stuff. And we had one guy who uh, he, he and I ended up becoming good friends and he was fun to hang out with on the road and stuff. And But it took a while 
before I even understood what he did because I knew that Jay Larkin had brought him over from Showtime when they were working the Showtime boxing operation. Uh, but it was just kind of like, but what do you, what do you actually do? What do you do for us? You seem to be on the phone a lot. I, but I don't get it. And finally he helped me to understand like, okay, we had to take this ring down, put it in a big ass truck or whatever, take it to the next place. Uh, and then we got to have people put it up. But when you go to different places like this and, uh, depending on when the ring arrives and what the local regulations are and, uh, you know, we're dealing with union workers, putting it up maybe and taking it down and the timing wise so that we don't end up running a foul of union, uh, rules or having to pay way more for the same amount of labor, all kinds of tricky shit like that, that has to happen. And now imagine you're doing it fucking damn near every weekend and all over the world rather than just across North America. Yeah. So, yeah, like it's got to be logistically a huge operation to go through. And yet also we've come to understand as we got a better picture of the UFC's overall business that pursuing international TV rights deals was uh, an increased piece of the pie for them, uh, especially later in the Fertiti years, but has continued to be where it's like, okay, we want to get these deals in all these different places so that eventually – you add them all up and they're comparable to what we're getting in our big domestic TV deals with somebody like ESPN. And part of showing that there's a real market for being able to, to put this stuff on TV is if you can bring an event there, similar to the old pro wrestling model. We're going to bring the show around. The TV show exists to try to hype you up for when we bring the show to, to your town. So you want to buy the tickets and you know all the people. And it doesn't work as well if we can't ever bring the the actual cage to your city and show you that we're there. Plus, we want to cultivate talent from that area. Enter Cyril gone. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things that always strikes me about the UFC breaking into these new markets or new territories or whatever. And this obviously has slacked off a little bit in recent years or this aspect of it has. And that is like we were always uh, asked to root for and cheer all of this expansion, right? As fans, as media, as spectators, like the UFC getting into New York, it was like, oh, what a big deal. We're all super happy about it. Or UFC makes it to Ireland and, oh, we're all, you know, this is the new Canada, this is the new Brazil, all this stuff. Uh, but one thing, especially now that I always remark upon is that it kind of doesn't matter to me where the UFC goes because it's not like baseball, right? It's not like if you hit a home run and you're at Shea Stadium in New York that a, uh, a big apple comes up out of a top hat in left field, or it's not like you're in Miami at the Marlins stadium. If you hit a home run, you could hit it into the hot tub in center field. Like it's not like where you go makes a big difference. The UFC broadcast always the same. Usually it's inside. So it doesn't matter. You could be in an arena in Paris. You could be in the apex in Las Vegas. You could be in Montreal. Exactly the same at at all times. Uh, I guess the only thing that you do kind of get is, you know, this week, fight week stuff of like pictures of Cyril Gaon and Tai Tuivasa uh, smoking and joking out in front of the Eiffel Tower and whatnot. So, so you do get that kind of local flavor, but mostly it's always the same. And so it strikes me that this is like yet another aspect of the UFC's business that we as its supporters were all asked to really cheer for and celebrate when it happened. But really, it's like kind of only a big deal for the UFC and maybe 
uh, the starved MMA France, uh, fans there in Paris, France. But like, really what we're cheering is like, oh, the UFC gets another opportunity to go make a bunch of money in France, and maybe they can get a TV deal in France now. And isn't that wonderful? Well, I would argue that there are some differences for the viewer, depending on, especially, you know, maybe not so much differences between going to Las Vegas and going to Columbus, Ohio. But, you know, when we have a show over there in London and you're watching it, for one thing, you're watching it often at a different time, but they're singing their songs like the Brits like to do. They're drinking the rail. They're having a good time. Uh, I mean, I, I know just from going to a few of those that it sometimes it's way more apparent when you're in the arena and it's harder to translate it to TV, especially when the UFC sometimes it's such a well-oiled machine that it's not that interested in showing how it's different in this place. Cause we're just doing the thing that we're always doing. But I do think you see some differences and you see like a different sort of crowd energy in Brazil, especially when they first got there, or you'll see a different sort of crowd energy in Paris than you would if it were, you know, we're in, like South Carolina somewhere. So like, I do think there's a value to that, but I also agree that we, we were asked to care a whole lot about it and support it a whole lot when really, especially with the New York thing, it was the UFC that really stood to benefit from it. And that too became apparent when we got a closer look at the business stuff, like when the, the investor pitches started going around trying to sell this thing. There was an entire page of that thing devoted to here's how being newly legalized and regulated in New York will affect our business model. And a lot of it was showing here's how much greater the average MLB ticket price is in New York City. Here's how much greater the NBA can charge for tickets in New York City. Here's, you know, merch sales for more there. You, you just you bring in more money there because it's just a more expensive city. And. That has ended up being true for the New York, for for the UFC in New York. But it was we were asked to care about it as this is a a last stronghold holding out against MMA, refusing to recognize our legitimacy. How dare they? When really, yeah. for the viewer, it was like, hey, you could hold it in New Jersey, man, and it's you're gonna get mostly the same people. Yeah, you know, it's not gonna be that big a difference to us. But I do think that it is sort of fun to go to a different place and show that different energy. I remember going to the one in Rio. That was the first one since, you know, it was the old UFC Brazil under, under different ownership. It was the first UFC in Brazil under Zufa ownership. It was where Anderson Silva fought Okami. And we were surprised all the media people, because for one thing, they ran a much tighter ship. They weren't just like, Hey, here's the arena. Show up. However you can. They're like, no, get on this van. We will take you there to make sure you don't get nothing bad happens to you on the way and make sure you get inside and all that stuff. And we got in there for the first fight of the night and it was packed to the rafters and people were fucking hyped. And we were like, yeah, yeah this is not Las Vegas. This is a different thing here. I think especially yeah. it's fun that first one like this, the UFC going to Paris, where that's when maybe you'll see the different energy. Yeah, I, you make a good point about uh, crowd definitely being different, especially overseas than uh, maybe in the domestic market i wonder what uh i wonder what the folks over there in france will be like just like well everybody's wearing berets for starters i imagine and uh many people will have brought their easels i'm sure so they could paint yeah. the action as it mm -hmm. goes down gonna be a lot of those uh curly q mustaches in the crowd and i would say i would think a, a healthy population of mimes <laughs> uh did you see my man Bobby Knuckles out here making weight and then enjoying a croissant in yeah. his robe. 
Yeah, people were talking about that over on the Discord earlier today, and a lot of people or several people were like, oh, man, I hope he doesn't get an upset stomach. Because uh, he did have, he had a healthy selection of uh, sweets, of baked goods there. But I, I got he's a professional, man. You know, Bobby yeah. Knuckles knows what he can and can't eat after he makes weight. He knows how to take care of his tum-tum. I think that he's uh, he's going to play it smart. And, you know, he doesn't have to eat them all at once. You know, maybe wake up in the morning and nibble a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Go to the fight, beat Mad Marv Vittori, come home, have another half donut. You know, wake up in the morning, that's your breakfast. You don't got to stop before you fly out. You've already got a, got a breakfast waiting for you. So it's just smart as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Maybe hit up McDonald's, get a Royale with cheese on your that's way out. Right. <laughs> Royale with cheese. All right. Should we do uh, $20 we never want to see again? You bet your ass we should. All right. So we're going to run down these bets from last week, which was an off week in the UFC. And we uh, preemptively decided that these would not count. No, didn't count. Toward the, the final tally, which I am now steamed about because I won. <laughs> I came out $13 ahead. Last week, which is a big haul for me for one of these $20 we never want to see again weeks. Weirdly enough, I just went two and two. So it's not like I fucking smoked it. Uh, the Elks, as we know, my beloved Edmonton Elks dropped their their game to the Ottawa Red Blacks. Oh, no. Snapped uh, their one game winning streak. And it was only the second win of the year for the Red Blacks. So uh, thanks to the Elks for that, I guess. What they is were the minus... Red Blacks? What the fuck is that? What? I mean, I don't know. Just... It's like well, it's a fucking soccer kind of name, man. You're I mean, just naming my... two colors. It's I mean, not even hey. the, I mean, I've heard of the all blacks and this yeah. year, like mm, we couldn't commit to one color. Red. Blacks. I mean, it would, probably, it would take some research to figure out what the red blacks is. It could be like a hawk or something for all well, I know. I from don't what know. I said this now, we're going to get an email explaining a fucking like 120 year history or something. Well, I hope we do expand our knowledge base a little bit. I also much to my chagrin, much, much to my own stupidity took Hawaii plus nine over Vanderbilt, which was immediately explained to me by numerous listeners that that was a dumb pick. And in fact, listeners had sent me earlier uh, links about the disaster that the Hawaii football team had been over the offseason. I totally forgot about that. Had I remembered, I probably would have not bet on them. As it were, I just saw the plus nine and kind of like the uh, dollar signs rolled around in my eyeballs. I decided to take it. Anyway, they got smoked. They lost by like 50 points or some fucking ridiculous bullshit. So they did not win that. But the two bets that I did win more than made up for it. I had uh, the Cubs plus 130 to beat the Brewers. That was a $5 bet. That paid out 1150, which the ease of that just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, And then, of course, I had Formula One Belgian GP, the big homie, Max von Stappen to win at plus 330. He did, in fact, win. Led, well, he started like 15th or something. There was some manner of controversy. He got knocked back to 15th, and then he just smoked the field. He led most of the way and won that. So I got uh, 2150 out of that Ooh. single bet. I, I got to ask, what was the basis for which you picked Max von Stappen on this shit? Cool name, uh, reasonable <laughs> odds, and I thought I remembered him from at least the partial episode of that uh, Drive uh, to Survive or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I watched part of an episode of that, and I think he was in that. So I was like, this name sounds familiar. It's He seems cool. Uh, three, to, three to one odds, that doesn't seem terrible. Uh, so I'll bet on him, and he won. He, he absolutely smoked the field. Well... 
I used a similar logic when betting on Lewis Hamilton in that same race because I watched like a season and a half of that show. I enjoyed it. But I was struck by how they'd be telling you the story about fucking Team Red Bull or who, you know, and you'd get all into it. And then you'd watch them get frustrated when they didn't even finish a race or you'd watch them get happy about finishing ninth or some shit. And then they'd be like, oh, by the way, Lewis Hamilton won again. Yeah, Lewis Hamilton won again. And this one, another one by Lewis Hamilton. And I was like, why aren't we hearing about this guy? He seems pretty good. And so when I saw him sitting there at plus 275 odds, I threw five bucks down on it and did not see a return. Now, elsewhere, though, this was a week where the refs just screwed me. Just refs and judges and all kinds of officials screwed me every way they could this week. Because, you know, I had my boys at Southampton. Let's go Saints. I, I picked them to get themselves a draw against Man United. And they should have. They lost 1-0. There was a no call on a clear handball in the box, Chad. Should have been a penalty. They would have evened it up there. Would have been 1-1. But no, lost my bet there. I had 5 bucks down to make 20. Um, And then, you know, this one, this is how you really know I went and got screwed by judges and officials and everything. Because I had Jose Pedraza to beat Richard Comey via decision in their boxing match. Uh, should have won that decision. Instead, Chad, the shit ended up as a split draw. How the fuck often do you see that? That is some bullshit. Everybody knows it, so I lost my bet there. The one that I did win, my beloved Memphis Redbirds in minor league action. They beat the Knights. Fuck the Knights. I had five bucks down to make 11. And so basically, I'm really glad that none of this shit counted. You know, over on the Discord, there was some actual discussion about how much money a person could bet if all if their only strategy was they just bet opposite of you every week. You know what? I wish these motherfuckers would. I wish you would. You know what? Do it and track your results. Show your receipts. Show your work. Let's see what happens. Do it. I dare you. I would guess someone's going to take you up on that. Please All right, do. Here, here we go. On to UFC Paris bets. I think we all know I have one bet in spirit. There's only one bet that really matters, but I do have four bets on the page this oh, week. See, I knew you didn't have the guts to just load up on that one bet. I knew you wouldn't do it. I got three bets. Okay, so not very many bets for either of us this week. Uh, I'll just start with the one everybody knows. Tai to Ivasa, plus 420. Smashed it. Smashed it on Thursday. That's how confident I was. $5 bet that would pay out $26 if he does indeed fulfill the heavyweight prophecy. So confident you'll only bet 5 bucks on it. If I had put the full 20 on there, it would pay off $104. So I did check. I did consider it. I did check the odds. But then I thought, we got to do a segment. You know what I mean? Like we gotta we gotta fill some time on air. If I only did the one bet, then I'm sure, letting everybody why. down. That's so here why. we go. Yeah. Well, you know, I heard people saying, "Hey, the only thing you need now to make the heavyweight prophecy come true is for Ben to go ahead and bet on Cyril gone." So you know what? You're welcome, motherfuckers. You're welcome. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And matter of fact, I got gone leading the way in my three-fight parlay because the odds on just him to win 
were, were it was not much of a return. It was like minus 540 or some shit when I looked at it. So I got Cyril gone. I got Nasrod Hakprost and I got Benoit St. Denis. The three of them, all favorites. I load them together. I get plus 131 and I'm putting 10 bones on it to make 2312. You wanted me to bet on gone? You felt like that would be the thing that, that propelled Tai Tuivasa to glorious victory? Well, here you go. Here you go. I mean, I would feel a lot more confident if uh, if you had bet on just him straight up to win. But instead, just wait, just wait, just fucking wait. Oh, there's wait. more. Oh, there's, there's more? more. Okay, okay. Uh, I took Nasruddin Imavov to defeat Joaquin Buckley. Okay. He's a minus two fifty favorite. Five dollar bet paid out seven dollars even. Wow, big spender, big swings here. Um, give me Bobby Knuckles via decision. Just feels like it. that. Just feels like the outcome. Robert Whitaker via decision minus one fifteen odds on that. I got five bucks down to make nine thirty four. I got Robert Whitaker just to win. Not gonna overthink it. Minus two fifteen five dollar bet pays out seven dollars thirty two cents. Okay. Now I'm gonna get crazy. Are you ready this for me to get crazy? Bet of yours. This is your last bet. Are you ready for me to get crazy, Chad? Yeah. Let's get nuts. Cyril gone in round three. Hmm. Plus 1,000 odds. Five bucks to make $55. Okay, hold on now. Let me let me make sure. Let me check the record, bud, here. If you hit that one, you would be back on the positive side of the ledger. Yeah, yeah, I would. I'm sitting right now at minus $43.09 by my That's records. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a big bet. Cyril gone in round three. Still not, just not one straight up bet on Cyril gone uh, to win, which I would have preferred if you had done that. Well, if he doesn't win, I'm kind of fucked this week. So okay. that's not good enough for you? Eh, I mean, I would have felt better if you had just bet straight up on him. But uh, I got my last bet, $5 bet on Nasrat Hakparas to win, minus $225. $5 bet pays out $722. Wow. Daring. Well, you see what I did there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If my, th- if my three favorites win, I come out in the black. Just barely. If Tied to Ivasa wins, then, it's, then we're going to fucking Sizzler. <laughs> All right, we'll see how it goes this weekend. UFC Paris. We're in a lot of killer lines on there, I have to say. And a uh, bit of a low-profile pro fight night event. We will be tracking them. That, that one goes down the middle of the morning, I believe, over here in the One True Time Zone. So we'll keep our eye on it. Uh, let's go ahead and turn the page here for Co-Main Event Podcast, Patreon, Power Hour, Power Rankings counting them down the most powerful happenings in the world of mixed martial arts we got 10 items this week counting them down from 10 to 1 here we go number 10 this week ben everybody continues to talk like francis and ganu is going to come back to the ufc so shrug emoji two stories out this week one from espn i believe uh mark ramondi is on this one talked to big fran himself and Francis says he's still feeling he's not that strong on the knee, the surgically repaired knee. So he's yeah. thinking maybe January he will come back. 
Here's his quote about, uh, you know, what he's going to do next. He says, my career doesn't depend on Tyson Fury or anyone else. My desire to box doesn't depend on Tyson Fury. Whether he's retired or not, I'm still going to box. I still want a boxing match in my career, a few boxing matches. And that's something I'm going to engage in conversations about when it when the moment comes. It depends. We haven't had the real talk with the UFC. But boxing can happen in the UFC as well. We haven't had the real talk. Let's see how it plays out. I'm open to any option. But what... I do know for sure is that I'm going to do that damn boxing. So the only thing I think we can div- divine from that is that Francis Ngannou uh, wants to box, making that part pretty clear. But he doesn't sound as dead set against returning to the UFC as he has sounded sometimes before. Then you got this other story, this one from Mike Heck over there on MMA Fighting. This is an interview with... Uh, uh, the head coach over there at uh, Extreme Couture, Eric Nixick, he's talking about the best opponents or the opponents that they want, the fights that they want for Francis Ngannou. He says probably early 2023 would be the soonest that Ngannou could return. And he's basically saying, you know, give me either Stipe Miocic or John Jones. But if I had to pick, I would take Jones because I want to fight the guy who's regarded as the best MMA fighter in the world. So we're probably just keeping our options open here is my guess, but we're not, we're not, if you're on Ngannou's side over here, you're not talking like this is a done deal uh, that you will leave the UFC. This is, this sounds like there is interest in returning. Yeah. Do you think that the boxing thing is a deal breaker for the UFC on their side? Let's assume he's super serious as, as serious as he sounds about that. That, hey, I'm going to box. Going to well, have a few boxing matches. Is the UFC going to be like, you know what? It would be good. And it would, we would like to do business with Francis enough that we can work with that. I mean, it certainly seems like a deal breaker on Engano's side. And you, you kind of know where I come down on this. If you've listened to me talk about this subject at any time during the past year or two, I feel like it would be complete idiocy on the part of the UFC to let Francis Engano walk away. The question is whether or not it's a big enough deal for them that they would kind of cave on that one issue and let Francis Ngannou go fight. And the 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 million dollar question, quite literally, in that aspect of the negotiations might be, can we wet our beak yeah. from the UFC? Because they let Conor McGregor do it in exchange for a pretty significant portion of his earnings for that Floyd Mayweather fight. I don't know that Francis would quite let them have like 50% or anything like that. But if the UFC, if they, if keeping him as a priority for them, which so far it has not seemed to be, but deep down in their brain's heart, if it is a priority when push comes to shove and they, they are willing to cave on that boxing issue, which again, they should, man, they just should, uh, you know, what percentage would be acceptable to them? Would it be, would the love of Francis was like, you can have 10%. Would that be good enough? I don't know. We'll see. I guess we'll see. It's just like, it seems like from the UFC point of view, like Francis is going to go make that boxing money anyway, man. You might as well get a chunk of it if you can. Yeah. Um, I love the phrase wet our beaks because there's never a time when it doesn't sound super shady. Yeah. Like you're, you're never talking about like wetting your beaks on like a totally above board matter. You know, it always makes you sound like a, a local mob boss in the sanitation business looking for a kickback. I love it. It's one of the reasons I use that phrase. I mean, do you think that you agree with that? Do you think that's right? Like, I don't know. It's 
the more time that goes by, the more I start to think like maybe we could actually get a deal done to keep him in the octagon uh, and let him go do the boxing that he wants to do. I mean, logically, it shouldn't be a problem for the UFC, especially like if you can make any money from him, even if you can't make any money from it, if you can just continue to make money from Francis Ngannou and then he goes and does this every once in a while. That seems better than losing him altogether. Like, there should be no problem with it unless the UFC just ego-wise or out of fear of letting him set a terrifying counterexample of how life could be that they think other fighters are then going to step up and ask for themselves. I, I just don't like I can't see any other reason why you wouldn't try to make a deal with Francis Ngannou. Yeah. You could do some real business with that guy. I agree. I totally agree. Uh, number nine this week, Ben. Classic MMA news cycle alert. Chael Sonnen says that Leon Edwards cheated. Media asks Dana White to comment on it, then reports those comments. Uh, Dana White says it is, quote, absolutely unfair for Chael Sonnen to say that Leon Edwards cheated at UFC 278. I'm looking at Kristen King's story over there at uh, Bloody Elbow. Now, of course, we're talking about the fence grabs in this fight with Kamaru Usman. Well, there were some fence grabs in there. We, we saw him. We saw him go down when the fence grabs happened. But this is just like, this is just some classic internet reportage media cycle shit where Chael Sonnen who has absolutely nothing to do with it, I assume is sitting home on the mean streets of Gresham, recording a video at Bad Guy Incorporated, sitting in front of the lighted wall that we talked about earlier this week, saying that Leon Edwards cheated, probably because Sonnen is 100% of the time going to come down on the side of the wrestler, uh, grabbing the fence, and then Dana White has to respond to it because someone asked him about it, it's not a story, but we're still going to get at least three stories out of it. Yeah. Jill Sonnen just says some stuff. And I think, you know, I, I, you're not wrong that he tends to favor a wrestler, but also he's just looking for engagement. He's just trying to say some stuff that'll get a reaction. That's the business he is in now. He says some stuff. And people go, Dana White, did you hear the stuff Chael said? What do you think about the stuff he says? Dana White just says some stuff about the just saying stuff that Chael Sonnen had. And we just just keep the recorders running and write it all down, and there we go. That's the business. Keep that content flowing. Number eight this week, Ben. God bless this video of GSP saying he hired a dude to kiss BJ Penn on the mouth. <laughs> the biggest stunner here for me is that I don't remember this. You when don't? It actually happen. I don't remember oh, George man, I can see it. saying this. I can this. close my eyes and see it in my mind right now. It's a, like a, it must be a weird blind spot of mine because I would have thought I would remember this as one of the all time great George St. Pierre interviews. Him saying that, uh, you got me guys. I cheated. He says the pressure is too much for me, which is awesome. It's an awesome little tidbit from GSP. This obviously a retro video from, uh, yeah. the, the, around the time of Greasegate. He said, I, here's how I cheated. If you watch, you can see that I paid a guy during BJ Penn's walkout to lean out and kiss him on the mouth. And from that point on, BJ Penn's strength was sapped and I was able to go out there and defeat him. 10 out of 10 hashtag would do again can recommend. I mean, that is some stuff that is like, 
that that was um, MMA memery basically ahead of its time. Yeah, hundred percent. Like one little weird thing happens on a UFC broadcast, and we're all making jokes and memes about it for the next seventy-two hours. And this is kind of before we had the true capacity to do that, and GSP was on top of it. Uh, I remember the 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 videos, the conspiracies and stuff about who is this guy? Who is this guy? Comes out of nowhere, kiss BJ Penn on his mouth. Man, I mean, this is just this is classic stuff right here. This is legend stuff. Yeah, this uh, the the incident itself predates Twitter just a little bit, or at least predates my involvement with Twitter. I think, but man, can you imagine if that happened today? Just that, like nothing else. Not even GSP saying that stuff, but just like the video, the three-second clip of the guy leaning out. First of all, the who kisses BJ Penn on the way to the octagon? Like, that's just this weird. Guy, this long-haired hippie. That's who. If that, if that had happened in today's social media environment, just imagine. Just imagine how much fun we would have had with it the night of and, and beyond. Kiss of death. That's what he got right there. This was also, though... Uh, right around the time when steel and fighters hats during their walkouts yeah. uh, became a big thing. The original gotcha hat. Mm-hmm. Later yeah. appropriated by the Paul brothers. <laughs> Number seven this week, Ben. Speaking of both classic MMA news cycles and GSP, who knows a thing or two about getting knocked out by an underdog opponent, he says Kamaru Usman's biggest challenge may be regaining his confidence in the wake of this knockout loss to Leon Edwards. This is George St. Pierre, I believe, doing a fan Q&A. He says, uh, after a loss, very often we see fighters that a loss can affect their confidence. Confidence is very important for a fighter because you can have all the skills in the world, but if you don't have confidence, it's like someone that has a lot of money in his bank account, but no way of accessing it. So for the magic to happen, you need the skills and the confidence. So we'll see how mentally strong Kamara Usman is. If he comes back and wins the title, I think it will add up to his legacy even more. But it's going to be a hell of a fight and a hell of a challenge. Is this uh, is the former champ on to something? GSP know he's he speaks from experience, yeah, I would say. That's what I was going to say. He ought to know he's been through it. Is he going to tell Kamara Usman that he needs to write Leon Edwards' name on a brick and then throw it off a bridge? That's Is that how what that, he did. Do, you don't that, remember that story that after losing to Matt Sarah and he went with like a sports psychiatrist and everything. And that then they told him, write Matt Sarah's name on a brick, take it to this bridge overlooking a river or something, throw it in, let it go, man. You got to let it go. But he talks a lot about that. But so like, I believe that he is talking from experience here. He, he knows what that journey back looks like. And for Kamar Usman, it might even be a little bit tougher because he's, Got to come back and fight Leon Edwards rather than Matt Serra. You know what I mean? Well, and see, I feel like I've blanked out a lot of this non, non-cage non stuff in GSP's career. I feel like maybe I need to go back and live it all over again. Yeah. But I mean, why weren't you on Share Dog in the years between like <laughs> 2008 and 2012? The hell? Po- just post by post, gradually earning my black belt uh-huh. over there on the Share Dog forums. Uh, George St. Pierre fundamentally changed the way he fought in the wake of that knockout loss to Matt Sarah. It might not be like a light switch was flipped, but over that, you know, let's call it the second half of his career, he did in fact morph himself into the most dominant offensive wrestler we've ever seen in mixed martial arts 
which I always say might be the most impressive athletic feat I've ever seen in mixed martial arts, considering uh, that George St. Pierre had no traditional offensive wrestling background and then just decided to get good at it. And he became the best. I wonder if we see Kamar Usman, who does have that wrestling background, opt for something similar with maybe a more uh, conservative game plan to go out there in the future against people like Leon Edwards. Yeah, I mean, it's not like his his first game plan was exactly wild and crazy. You know, That's just true. <laughs> ended up standing there in the middle with him for too long. Uh, I would think the the key for Kamar Usman is going to be dealing with the guy's kicks all the way through the fight rather than, you know, just thinking about the one kick that starts you at the end. But I do think psychologically it is something and, and it works on the other side, too, where Leon Edwards now ha- he's been in there with you for five rounds and he has that win over you. He's probably going to feel a little better about himself coming into that next fight. Yeah. Number six this week, Ben, Tai Tuivasa weighs in as the biggest allowable homie. <laughs> but it's kind of misleading to say Cyril Gaon is, quote, giving up 20 pounds to him. Is it not? <laughs> Cyril Gaon weighs in 247 pounds at the weigh-in today. Tai Tuivasa, 266. So right up there at the heavyweight limit. But all you got to do is see a picture of the two guys, right? And you know that, like, all right. Do we call this a weight advantage? Question mark, question mark, question mark. You're saying that maybe it's not just the weight itself. It's how it is distributed. They say muscle weighs more than fat. Okay. But if that's true, Cyril Gaon would weigh like two tons. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, especially thinking about the kind of fight that we're anticipating. I don't know if... Anybody is really going back to like their predictions of being like, oh, I got to recalibrate everything now that I know that Tai Tuivasa has got 20 pounds. And I'm like, we kind of knew. We kind of knew what we were dealing with here. What each guy is going to do. We're probably not going to do a ton of wrestling or anything where that, that poundage would really make a difference. Uh, you could say, well, okay, Tai Tuivasa coming in as a beefier boy. If he, if he dinks him, he'll sink him. But we knew that already. We we already knew that. That's not news. Yeah. The Cyril Gunn, his game plan is going to be tailored probably around that. So I don't know. I don't know if it's really going to make too much of a difference. If I'm tied to Ivasa, I walk out to this fight in my Venom branded singlet, some headgear, <laughs> and my Asics wrestling shoes. Maybe just, uh White towel around your neck. Yep. Mm -hmm. Socks pulled way up. And I start shooting those, you know, doing those lunges, Mm -hmm. shooting those, those wrestling lunges in the cage, dragging the foot, just getting ready just to see, just see if I can mess with him a little bit. And he looks over in your corner and it's like Daniel Cormier, Kurt Angle, (laughs) Dan Severn. Yeah. And they have all, they're all wearing track suits tucked up above their their belly button tucked in and they're all holding clipboards for some reason yep they're all wearing whistles, whistles. around we don't their know neck. why they yeah. got whistles around their necks but they do <laughs> yeah then still gonna be like oh shit this is not what i prepared for i prepared for dink him and sink him kind of approach <laughs> uh number five this week man it's too bad really just think of how great mma could have been if greg jackson had not killed the entire sport 10 years ago this week. 
It is the 10th anniversary of the demise of UFC 151. When they remember this, when they called a special press yeah, conference, I was on that. Didn't have, didn't, I, did, I listened to it too. Didn't have to do it. Dana White called a special press conference just to rip Greg Jackson and the Jackson Winklejohn team down there in Albuquerque called Greg Jackson himself a sport killer mm-hmm. due to the cancellation of this event. Uh, I am looking at Milan Ordonez's story on Bloody Elbow. They called up, uh, or MMA Fighting seems like they called up Greg Jackson to ask him about. Ask him if he had any regrets. No, zero, Jackson says. I'm always going to do what's best for my guy, not what's best for the promoter. It sucks that we did that, but you're putting us in a position where we we prepared to fight the person you wanted us to fight and do that stuff. I'm not really sure why he got so mad. I still don't know. I get that it's a control thing. Quote, if I say you do this, you fucking do it. I get the whole bully aspect of it. But you're, if you're a promoter, you're not a bully. Just in that situation... I think Dana was off the mark a little bit. <laughs> Very muted and subtle. The ever understated Greg Jackson. You know, the thing that stands out to me now is I remember the UFC at Dana White and Fertitta, Lorenzo Fertitta make a big deal about, can you believe it? We've never had to cancel an event before. These guys fucking tanked this event for us. And it was like, well, first of all, they didn't tell you to cancel the event. They just said, we're not doing that fight. We're not accepting that short notice opponent on that date. And as Greg Jackson made clear in this interview, they're like, hey, give us two more weeks. Rescheduled for, you know, the, he, John Jones fought later that same month. Fought Vitor Belfort, who the UFC put in there with him, knowing that he was juiced to the fucking gills, bro. Remember that controversy? Yep, UFC knew that. They knew that's, that shit. That's the one where they ac- accidentally emailed it out to everybody. Yep. Accidentally emailed Vitor's like doctor lab report out to everybody and then tried to really quickly send them an email being like, by the way, just you possessing this is illegal. Like, you better not do it. And of course, it got leaked to the media and everything. But they knew that shit. They put him in the cage later that month with a juice to the gills Vitor Belfort in Canada. So it's not like he was saying, like, I won't fight. I won't fight a short notice replacement. Just I won't fight him this weekend. And they flipped out, canceled the event. That was entirely the UFC's decision. But they and, and it was because they had spread some of these pay-per-views so thin that they could not afford to lose a main event. Uh, they knew nobody was going to buy it because they didn't have anything else on the card. And then they were like, they made a big deal about how unprecedented it was. Oh, never have to do this before. These guys, can you believe these fucking guys? Two years later, they did it again. With Jose Aldo and Chad Mendez. Remember, they're they're supposed to do the rematch there in L.A. in 2014 at UFC 176. Aldo got hurt beforehand. They couldn't find a suitable replacement, so they canceled again. And then you don't have anybody to blame except yourself. But it was like, you made a big deal about how these guys did this. And then the same shit happened to you again two years later, and you had to be like, "Mm, maybe actually we did it. And they actually learned from it. That, That was We saw that, too, in their... Some of their pitches to investors where they were like, we learned that you got to stack these pay-per-views with at least two good fights in case something happens to one of them. Or you got to pay somebody on retainer to be around as a replacement opponent that you can call upon. Uh, And so those are the things we did to kind of fix that problem. It's entirely their problem. And they just found a way to blame John Jones and sport killer Greg Jackson. You know, sometimes I just I find myself wondering, just laying awake at night. Wondering what, what would have become of it had MMA lived. 
<laughs> what if MMA were still around today? It's just, it's funny to think about. Number four this week, Ben, Ben Rothwell set to make his BKFC debut against a totally real, not at all made up fighter named Bobo O'Bannon. No, get out of here. It's going down October 1st at the Fant Ewing Coliseum in Monroe, Louisiana, the granddaddy of them all. I haven't even told you the best part. (laughs) Haven't even told you the best part. I could sit, I could sit there and let you guess Bobo O'Bannon's nickname for a hundred years and you would never get it. (laughs) Bobo is not the nickname. You're going to sit there and tell me Bobo is his given name. <laughs> I don't know if his I don't mama believe named you. Him Bobo or not. Bobo, Reginald. the Bible his nickname belt is Reginald. brawler. I'm sorry. Did you what? hear this? Bobo, the Bible belt brawler. O'Bannon, the Bible belt brawler. That's five B's. Oh, it's actually six B's if you count both the B's and Bobo. Bobo, the Bible belt. It's seven B's. Brawler <laughs> O'Bannon. Bobo, the Bible Belt Brawler O'Bannon. That's a that's not a real person. Say what you want to about the evangelicals, but when they want to alliterate, woo, look out, they can. That's that is a cartoon character. There's no way it's a real person. He's already got six fights under the BKFC banner. He's three and three is Bobo the Bible Belt Brawler O'Bannon. You're gonna say this every time, aren't you? In his most recent appearance, he was quickly stopped by the hulking Alan Belcher at a BKFC fight night event. Thanks to the big homie, Stephen Morocco, for all of that information over there at MMA Junkie. Bobo, the Bible Belt Brawler. Oh, God. O'Bannon. Where is he from? Where the, the Bible, Bible Belt? Did you do uh, That covers a lot of territory. I, I couldn't I'm make it any clearer a little more specific. All right. You're going to make me go to the Google machine. I just went to the Google machine and uh, I mean, I don't think there could be too many Bobo O'Banions, but (sighs) hold on to your butts here. Tapology claims he is fighting out of Florida. Okay, that ain't the Bible Belt. That's the opposite of the Bible Belt. Florida? No, that can't be right. Hold on. He's on. He's on the gram. Uh, Do you want to know what his Instagram handle is? Is it at the Bible Belt Brawler? It's the Bible Belt Brawler. Okay, just, just that was a good good guess by me, I guess. He's got 21.9 thousand followers. Not bad. What? Bobo oh, Bannon, athlete, God is good, hashtag toes to Jesus. Is that what happens to his opponents? They wind up toes to I Jesus? No, I'm so confused right now. Looking up at, this, at the arena lights, toes to Jesus. I'm going to start saying that. Toes to Jesus ain't bad. And here he is. He's standing there. He's holding a, a banner that says "Toes to Jesus." And then somebody's wearing a T-shirt that says "Toes to Jesus." That's it's a whole thing, apparently. It's, I mean, for it Bobo, ain't bad, the Bible Belt Brawler O'Banion. That ain't. I see. You said it once. Now you're not going to be able to stop I saying it. What have you done? Don't blame me. Blame Bobo, the Bible Belt Brawler O'Banion. <laughs> Number three this week, Ben. And so, Vanderlei Silva is retired, at least from MMA. Kind of. The axe murderer steps away from the cage, Ben. But he's still interested in a boxing match against Dan Henderson. Oh, good. Legendary veteran Vanderlei Silva says he'd still get in there and uh, put the big gloves on and do the damn thing with Hendo if uh, if the stars align that way. You wrote a little something about uh, 
remembering Vanderlei Silva over there at uh, the the Fighting Life Substack. Did you not? I did, and uh, you know, I feel like if a lot of people who come along now, every once in a while, I'll see these people on the Twitters, Chad. People talking about how they started following this sport in like 2017. And by now, they probably feel like old heads because they've been at it for five years. But imagine you start following this shit in 2017. You don't even know about this motherfucker, Vanderlei. Yeah. Unless you really went and did your research. You know, sitting there watching a Pride event from the Saitama Super Arena when Sandstorm comes on. Mm-hmm. Even Led before Hart. that, some of those scary-ass videos of Vanderlei fighting in... Uh Valley Tudo fights. Yeah, just soccer kicking and headbutton people barefisted. And in these rings that are set up in a Brazilian nightclub where they got a little netting around the bottom rope just so that you can't roll out and escape from Vanderlei as he is kicking <laughs> you in the fucking face. I, I can just, I can, I can close my eyes now and I can hear Len Hart being like, from Brazil. You know what I'm saying? I get the chills. Yeah. No, he was a scary dude back in the day. Scary yeah. dude. And now he's going to run for some kind of political office and be a, perhaps a scary dude in a different way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's that's a, another chilling thought. Uh, number two this week, Ben, in sadder news, the CME's communal scorpion bolo tie appears to be stuck in customs trying to get into Sweden. What the fuck? And it has been for almost a month we're going to, this is, this is a developing story, but what had happened was we sent it over to our guy, Tom Hughes over there in England. He wore it, had a hell of a time, sent us a dispatch that maybe we'll put up over at the Patreon page, uh, about his time wearing the, uh, the, the scorpion glow in the dark bolo tie, uh, shout out Tom Hughes, by the way, a moderator over on the, uh, official co-made event podcast, discord message board. Uh, then he had to send it on to our guy, Martin over there in Sweden, who was the next up. I didn't check. I was like, I assume Martin got it. I assume he wore it to his event. Then I hit him up on uh, Patreon about a week ago. I was like, hey, man, did you get the bolo? Did you wear it? Did you have a great time? He's like, it never showed up. Oh, what? I was like, uh-oh, code red, code red. So I went back to Tom and Tom luckily had a Royal Mail tracking number. Hell yeah. Plug that into the internet. Luckily, I could track a Royal Mail package from over here in Missoula, Montana. Turns out it has been stuck at customs in Sweden for a long time now. To his credit, our guy Martin, he jumped on the phone. He sends me this message on Patreon. Hello. I called up the customs office, which referred me to the postal service, with whom I spoke, and they said something's up with the parcel. And they sent me an inquiry to the customs office asking why they hadn't gotten an inf- any information about the parcel since its arrival in Sweden. And they asked me to get back to them in one week when they have more information. However, the ball is rolling. I think we'll get it back. Then he says, I've seen some shows about the Australian border police. And they are never too keen on letting dead scorpions into the country, no matter in what packaging they arrive. I think that may be the problem here. Uh, so I don't, maybe, maybe it's frowned upon to try to ship a scorpion corpse, regardless of how ensconced it is inside an awesome glow in the dark bolo tie. Maybe you just can't ship it to a place like Sweden. I don't know. I mean, okay. Even if that law does exist, shouldn't there be a carve out for when the thing is especially dope? Yeah, there absolutely should. There should be an exception where you're like, okay, we normally don't allow this. But you're going to look cool as hell in this, man. So (laughs) go on your merry way with blessings. 
I mean, a conspiracy theory was floated on Twitter when I started tweeting about this the other night that perhaps some of the guys who work there in the Sweden custom customs office had a formal event that they needed to attend. <laughs> so maybe they're just holding it for an extra week or so until they can go over there and wow their friends. And then lo and behold, it's going to clear customs and we'll get it back. I don't know. I don't know what, what the, the full story there is, but uh, prayers up to the, uh, to the co-main event podcast, communal glow in the dark scorpion bolo tie. And here's hoping we get it back where it belongs. Yeah. Cause if we don't, office. If we don't, we're going to get it on your ass. Think about your next move here, Sweden. I just want to address Sweden as a nation here for a moment, if I may. Think about what you're doing. Think about the consequences of your actions. Because the CME community, we're everywhere. You know? The Patreon over here is a lot of like CalicoCutPants.com. A lot of people give. <laughs> so just watch your ass. Don't you fuck with give. the bolo tie. My next step is going to be I'm tweeting Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. That'll I'm do tweeting. It. I'm tweeting at Joey Ballgame, and I'm asking him, <laughs> Joey B, anything you can do here? Slide into my DMs if so. Can we pull some strings? Get the Scorpion Bolo tie back. You know what? Get a little triangular diplomacy going on. You tweet Joey Ballgame. I'll tweet Vladimir Putin. We'll be okay. just pressuring Sweden from both sides. You know, they won't be able to withstand it. If possible, I'd like to keep Vladimir Putin from finding out about the existence. <laughs> Of the communal glow yeah. in the dark. Scorpion if I fall out of a time. window after I tweet Vladimir Putin, <laughs> we'll know what happened. Number one this week, Ben Connor McGregor headlines this week are number one that he mo that he maybe posted on Instagram a video of himself receiving oral sex on his yacht. He definitely and. Did. Then made a bunch of the dumbest, easiest, most tasteless jokes about a little person. In other words, pretty normal week for him. <laughs> This is where we have fallen with the most famous MMA fighter in the world. He's posting videos of him getting a beach up there on the top deck of the yacht. I mean, I guess the one thing that we can say in his favor is that it appeared to be his fiance uh, who was administering the the oral sex. Uh, yeah, but that shouldn't be the good news. I mean, that's what I'm saying. But that that's you the posted best thing the video of your children's mother. <laughs> the one positive thing we can take away from it is it wasn't some rando. It was D. Devlin from what we can tell. But, you know, Connor. That's not cool, bro. I would just say th these kids are going to get old enough one day to access the Internet. And you could delete some stuff off your Instagram. But the stuff people wrote about the stuff they saw on your Instagram is still going to be out there. And I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like uh, anybody ever walked in on their parents having sex and you're already embarrassed. Imagine if then it was an article on MMA mania. You know, it's not great. That's not great. He tweeted some stuff about Hasbula. I'm not going to read them. You can imagine what it was. Connor McGregor. Let's just say his like his is uh it doesn't seem like he's had to to workshop his humor much. It just seems like maybe if you're Connor McGregor and you say the easiest possible thing at all times, you're used to people laughing at it. So no need to improve. No need for any personal improvement in that in that realm, let's just say. Uh he he did uh, draw the ire of Alexander Volkanovsky though. I mean Alexander Volkanovsky is a refined gentleman. And That's he's true. he he's all for us having fun. 
but he doesn't want to see us be foolish. He doesn't want to see us be hurtful to other people. You know? And I appreciate that about Volk. When we get to this point where I'm talking about Conor McGregor posting the sex act on his uh, Instagram and tweeting all this stuff about Hasbullah, I wonder to myself, maybe we should have let Greg Jackson kill it. (laughs) You know? Maybe Greg was trying to do us a favor. Yeah, could be. Could be. In any case, that is going to wrap it up this week for the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings, and by extension, the Power Hour itself. That's it for our Patreon content for the week. I hope everybody enjoys some mid-morning MMA tomorrow with the UFC over there in Paris. And of course, it is uh, Labor Day weekend, so we're off on Monday, but we'll be back, I think, on Tuesday, as long as we can both swing it, with an episode of The Proper and then a, a, a regular, regularly scheduled week of Patreon content that I believe culminates in us going up to great falls to go to the bkfc event sure sounds that way are we still doing it have you been in touch with the bkfc people i've been in touch sounds like uh we're taking a road trip we better get hotel rooms yeah we better so we're not uh staying up all night in great falls maybe we can stay at the o'hare motor inn roll down get us some bed bugs yeah hell yeah (laughs) Well, it's Great Falls. We're going to get bed bugs no matter where we stay. I'm bringing so. bed bugs. Fuck it. <laughs> All right. Check us out ahead. for that. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. As for right now, we're done.